In September 2021, Russia applied a foreign agent law to citizens who report or share information on crime, corruption, and especially themes relating to military and security services. But the origins of this law go back much further to 2012, when Russia started to regulate public associations, NGOs, and other private financial entities. At first, the law was likened to US legislation that limits the activities of lobbyists employed by foreign governments. But since its introduction, the scope of the law has been progressively expanded. Now it can be described as a blunt and indiscriminate weapon that's been used to crush every vestige of civil society and independent media in Russia. Today, I'm discussing the impact of the foreign agent law on journalism, civil society, organizations, and political opposition. And we'll be looking at the effects it has had on some specific groups and individuals, such as Echo Moskvi, TV Rain, and Navalny's team, as well as the work of Memorial. Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. Please like and subscribe if you like the content we produce. It will really help to increase the popularity of our content in YouTube's algorithm. Our material is now being made available on popular podcasting platforms as well, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Jenny Mathers is a senior academic with expertise in Russian politics and security, gender and conflict. She's been a senior lecturer at Aberystwyth University since 1992. Jenny is experienced in policy analysis, political science and lecturing. She is a doctor of philosophy focused on international relations gained from Somerville College, Oxford University. Coincidentally, 1992, the year you became a lecturer was the year that I first went to Russia prior to doing a language degree in Edinburgh. So Jenny, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, before we go deeper into this topic, um, can you please tell me a bit more about your area of expertise and really what got you into this subject? Sure. So I'll start with uh, with the second one first. So what got me in involved in, in being interested in Russia? Um, well, we have to go back to my childhood, actually, because I grew up in the United States during the Cold War. And one of the compulsory classes that we had to take in high school was called Americanism versus Communism. And it was there to um, try and demonstrate to uh, teenage Americans uh, the evils of, of communist Russia and China and the, the, the virtues of democracy and capitalism and the American way. And I'm afraid it had the opposite effect on me in the sense that I found I, I was really fascinated by the Soviet Union as it was then. <clears throat> and I just wanted to know more about it. For some reason, China didn't spark my, my imagination quite as much, but, but, uh, but the Soviet Union really did. I guess it was the site of all the pictures of people in the snow. And of course, living in Florida, we had no, nothing like that. So I, um, when I got to college, uh, I did my undergraduate at Mount Holyoke University, Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. Um, and I started studying Russian language and history and politics. And then I did a, a two-year master's in MPhil in Slavonic and East European Studies at Oxford, uh, and then the DPhil uh, at Oxford as well. So, and then I kind of just carried on. Um, so that's kind of the, the origin story. Um, in terms of my areas of, of interest and expertise, I really started out looking at uh, nuclear weapons, uh, Soviet nuclear weapons. I did my PhD thesis on Soviet ballistic missile defense policy. Um, and uh, so the sort of strategy, security, hard end of, of international relations was where I started. 
But increasingly, I became interested in the relationship between what goes on domestically in, in the Soviet Union and then Russia and its foreign and security policy and seeing how those two are linked. And also, I started becoming more interested in uh, women and militaries. Um, and that interest sparked when I was uh, going back and forth to, to Russia quite a lot in the early 1990s, mid 1990s. And I noticed that all of the security guards, the border guards who, who check your passport uh, in the airport went from being all men to being all women really quite quickly. This, this change happened and I thought, oh, what's going on there? So I started looking into women in the Russian military um, and then broaden that out a bit to try and understand a wider context. So women in state militaries more generally uh, and sort of broaden that out even further to sort of gender and conflict. So it's a, it's a, a reasonably wide portfolio, but it actually, I find it, it fits together really well because I see all kinds of connections between the, the different aspects of, of uh, things that I study. Well, definitely pick you up on that later, because when we look at the list of prescribed organizations and individuals, um, there are actually quite a few there that deal with domestic abuse. And that's quite an interesting angle. Um, you know, suppressing civil society also involves suppressing women. And I think we'll we'll come back to that topic as well. Um, now, the Russian foreign agent law requires anyone who receives support from outside Russia or is under influence from outside Russia to be registered as foreign agents. Is this law as sinister as it sounds? <laughs> it is actually. Um, it's, it's, it, it started out being pretty bad back in, in 2012 when it was first introduced. Um, and it has successively gotten much, much worse and then gotten much, much broader. Um, I mean, on the face of it, one might think, well, what's what's the problem? If you're getting money from abroad, then what's the problem with uh, sort of being being public about it and 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 joining this register of the Ministry of Justice and you know being upfront? But of course, um, that that hides a, a lot of things. It, it hides the fact that um, quite a lot of civil society organizations in Russia, which were the, the among the first targets of, of the foreign agent law. Um, were really very heavily reliant upon uh, funding from overseas because it was almost impossible for them to raise money within Russia. Um, they certainly wouldn't be getting any money from, from the state. Um, and you know, charitable donations and sort of fundraising uh, of that sort in Russia was just not something that, that really was, was feasible, uh, wasn't gonna give them enough money. So they were very much dependent upon the sort of international uh, community uh, to provide them with funds. And so, you know, right there, um, their, very, their very model of existence was, uh, was kind of being attacked. Um, so, yeah, so on, on the face of it, it might sound quite innocuous, but, but in practice, it was very, um, very much the opposite. And in addition to simply being, <clears throat> being identified as a foreign agent uh, or, or identifying yourself as a foreign agent, um, the, the, the list of things you had to do once you were a foreign agent, is is very restrictive and um last year we had uh one of the the editors of medusa which has been declared a foreign agent this was before he they actually left uh russia entirely um but but he was telling my students i got one of the editors to speak to to my students about what it is to be a journalist in russia at, at that time uh before the the current war uh broke out and he described all of the sort of the bureaucratic hurdles that they had to go through on a regular basis and the, 
really um, very uh, you know extensive uh, reporting mechanisms for you know any kind of spend expenditure. They had to be very very precise about what they recorded, um, the extent to which the auditors could kind of come in and look at their their books and their their things at any time. Um, that was absolutely fine. And then of course having to publish. Um, this disclaimer, this lengthy uh, disclaimer about, you know, this information is from a foreign agent um, in, in specific um, uh, sort of typeface, you know, the, the law is very specific about, you know, how big it has to be and, and all the rest of it. Uh, every time they put something on social media or publish anything on their website or anything like that. And just the way that he described it, it he said it was really about um, you know, kind of being that the, the government sort of wanted these organizations that were declared foreign agents to exhaust themselves through bureaucracy. You know, it was a way of, of making the organizations themselves run around in circles to try and, and comply with all of these regulations. And of course, the regulations are really designed to wear people out and they're not, they're not really designed for a useful purpose. They're designed as punishment. Um, and so, you know, this is this is the system that they were uh, locked in, locked into. And so, you know, over the years since 2012, uh, more and more groups and organizations have been uh, encompassed within the foreign agents law, um, and more and more different kinds of activities have been encompassed within it. So, you know, a few years ago, it was oh well, if you report anything on the military or the security services. Uh, then, you know, anything is negative, then suddenly, uh, you know, you too could be a foreign agent. Or if you, if you reproduce something which a foreign agent has produced, uh, you could be caught in that web as well. So it's, it's very invidious. Um, and it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's almost a web, you know, it's a sticky web of, uh, of regulations. And uh, it's really designed to make sure that people stay well clear of anything that could possibly uh, take them into that territory. So it's really and of course it hmm. puts a big label on your head as well, doesn't it? it it's does. like every public pronouncement you make, every article you write, every tweet you even send theoretically has to be prefaced by, you know, this block of text that yeah. basically says, I'm a traitor to my country, which is essentially the subtext. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it has that connotation of, you know, ooh, foreign agent, it sounds you know, underhanded, it sounds um, like, you know, unpatriotic, it sounds like something that uh, only a traitor would actually engage in, who would be a foreign agent, you know, for what other reasons. So yes, the, uh, the statement, you know, it's very humiliating, and it scares off uh, people who might otherwise support the organization. So, um, you know, going back to the example of Medusa, you know, the editor was saying, well, it, it totally ruined their business model, because it scared off um, advertisers and people who might, you know, subscribe and, and give them money and so on. So it has a whole wide range of um, really dramatic effects. Now, the implication of that might not be immediately clear to, you know, everyone who's listening, but the way the Russian regime controls people, isn't it, is by making them financially dependent on the state. So in effect, the Foreign Agent Act is forcing people who are much more likely to oppose them or, or express opposition points of view, these people are much more likely to crowdsource their funding or to have a more innovative business model or more democratic business model. Um, and it basically closes that off. And then you either have the choice to go underground or leave or find some other way to, to earn your money, or as some have, you know, buckle down and work with the state and 
change your point of view. So it's quite insidious, isn't it? It is. It doesn't leave um, an organization or indeed an individual with a whole lot of choices. None of the choices are particularly good ones. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's designed to, to force people themselves to um, sort of self-destruct, you know, in a way, uh, to, so to leave people with fewer and fewer opportunities, fewer and fewer choices, and to send, uh, send them down this path where, you know, everything gets narrower and narrower until suddenly there's nowhere left to go. Uh, so you either comply with the state or basically you leave. Um, and so, you know, this is this is sort of what is what has become the hallmark of, I think, Putin 2.0, you know, since he's returned to the Kremlin in 2012. It's been, well, my road or the high road. And, you know, I, I will put all of these measures into place to really put pe people under enormous pressure. And then either they crack and they, you know, submit themselves to the system or they just leave and they they evacuate and that that means that I have you know fewer problems to deal with because I have fewer people who are going to be opposing me and resisting me and, and stirring up trouble internally. And that's key isn't it because um, we'll come to them later individual groups but a lot of Russian journalists have been forced to go abroad and there was a period really in March, April, May where I think they were reorienting um, uh, the, the output of, say, videos and articles dropped off significantly, and, and they were probably reeling from the effects of, of being uprooted from their network, their equipment, their funding, and everything like that. There is an exception, we'll come to that in a minute, which is the Team Navalny. They were like ready to go already. Um, but we're now seeing a lot of these networks reemerge, aren't we? Uh, both Echo Moskvi and Dojd, they're back up, they're broadcasting, uh, their journalists are now based in. Georgia, the Baltics, Armenia, um, and across Europe. Does Putin care about this, or is he really only trying to control the hermetically sealed environment of uh, within Russia itself? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think he definitely has a, a hierarchy of, of whose opinion matters. And if you think about um, who his base, we might think of his base, uh, if we think of it in those terms, as you know, mainly rural Russia, um, you know, people, working class people, people who are quite socially conservative, um, maybe the people who don't go to these kinds of outlets for their news anyway, uh, people who watch, you know, state TV and, and that's enough for them. Um, it's not the kind of people necessarily who will make the effort and, and go to the expense of getting a VPN so that they can access foreign media, for example. Um, you know, those people are maybe, you know, Putin probably knows he's already lost those people. Um, and, and this is the gamble that he's taking really, is if you if you remove that layer of, of influencers and leaders and the people who are most active and energetic and, and, you know, creative in the way that they try and resist and have independent ideas and promote them, if you take them out of circulation, either through prison or through exile or through this kind of, you know, these, these kind of laws like the foreign agents law, if you silence them or at least move them away, then you're left with people who are basically leaderless in the sense of not having an alternative to the state. You know, they're, they're, even though the state is already dominant, it was already dominant even 10 years ago, you know, this is really super enhanced that ability of the state to, to control what people are seeing, what they're hearing, 
Um, and I think this seems to be the way that that Putin and his and his colleagues um, understand control these days. It's how they understand how the state operates. It's like, well, okay, this is what we're going to do. Um, and those other people who are busy making noise abroad, well, in a way, they've already removed themselves from the scene. They've already tainted themselves by not even being in Russia. And, and this is very significant isn't it because people like um Navalny, Karamurza, Ilya Yashin, some of the most significant political leaders who um clearly are mindful that they want to have some kind of role in the post-Putin world many of them have gone back and yes they're silenced they're not that visible but as you say that they're, they're there which perhaps will give them more authority later yeah. I mean that's optimistic that's assuming Russia will go liberal in a few years. I mean, there's, it's it's uh, probably not a high probability that it will, but that must be their calculation. Yeah, well, it's it's optimistic in the sense that you know we're thinking well within their lifetimes <laughs> they're going to have the opportunity to you know to be released from prison and to to be able to be active in politics again. And you know we hope that that, that will be the case. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I remember when, you know, when Navalny, right after he was poisoned, you know, two years ago, and then he was recovering. And then he decided to come back to go back to Russia. And of course, it was arrested immediately when he when he arrived. And I remember at the time, you know, students and, and journalists and various people asking me, well, why has he gone back? You know, why on earth would you go back knowing what was going to happen pretty much it was pretty calm we were everybody was pretty certain that that was what was going to, to happen and that he would be arrested and he would be in prison and he might never come out again um and it, it definitely is this sense that that in order to have any kind of credibility with um the population in order to have any kind of hope of having any influence in politics in the future you have to be there you can't do this from abroad you just have no legitimacy. There's no, there isn't that same kind of sense that you've suffered with the people. You've lived through the same experiences and, and you're you're part of that society. Um, there's always this, you know, kind of tension, I think, between uh, the diaspora and the people back within the within the home country about, you know, are they really, are they really as patriotic? Are they really proper, mm. you know, citizens in the same way that the ones who stay and suffer? Uh, are of a citizen. So I think, you know, it's it's a big consideration if you've got political ambitions and you want to, you know, enable yourself to be in a position to, to be leading perhaps uh, one day. And that, uh, that sort of harks back uh, to the Soviet Union as well, doesn't it? Because anyone leaving in, say, the 70s, um, I heard stories of friends gathering before someone was about to leave and having a mock funeral for them because they would believe they never see that person again. So even though they hadn't died, in effect, that was it. They're going to be cut off forever. And there is this tendency to almost immediately feel that if you're Russian and you're abroad, you no longer understand. You no longer appreciate how things work. Mm -hmm. Somehow you've been tainted by Western ideas, decadence, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, exactly. And I think... A lot of the rhetoric that we're getting from, from Putin's regime really reinforces that message, this idea increasingly, I think, that, that Russia needs to be protected from these foreign ideas, um, whether it's about um, democracy or liberalism or, 
or whether it's about you know sexuality and uh, you know right human rights and and gay marriage or whatever it happens to be that, that these ideas are are foreign and they're dangerous and that Russians don't want to have have anything to do with them they need to be protected from them um, and you know it really it really speaks to this sense of well if it's foreign it's not for us um, and you know this sort of search for an authentic um, Russian idea of uh, you know what it is to, to be a proper Russian and what it is to be expect, accept, accepted uh, in sort of in, in Russian society and I think he, he's pushing this quite hard uh, because it really fits in nicely with with his philosophy of anybody who disagrees with him can just you know go away and, and not trouble him anymore. And and you know uh, it he's always looking or Russian propaganda is always looking for angles to leverage within the West and there's culture war uh battles going on obviously in the us to a lesser extent in europe um but i think we shouldn't get fooled by that should we i mean at its heart when he means decadent or tainted or different what he really means is pluralistic what he really means is a population who are prepared to fight for causes whatever they happen to be what he wants is some kind of passive uh homogenous um sort of people or population that's not going to you know challenge whatever it happens to be their policies their thievery whatever they're engaged in yeah it's also quite a backward looking <clears throat> way of thinking about society um that, that sort of any any new ideas about how we should live our lives and what we should think and what we should read and what we should watch all of the anything that's sort of new is bad um, and and the, the things that are are held up as as examples and and are really kind of presented to society is you know this is the model the role model the the hero they're all from the past and and sometimes from the quite distant past uh, but certainly you know the great patriotic war second world war is is all over the place in terms of of uh, resonance with what's happening today and people being told you know let's we have we have to refight the second world war again and Nazis and all the rest of it but but there's really no vision in any of this for for a future you know how do you go forward if society doesn't grow and develop and change if no one is allowed to have new ideas if no one is allowed to challenge the status quo that's a i mean that really does remind me of of the, the bad old days of you know the brezhnev years and stagnation and all the rest of it when just everything gets very very slow and then it just seizes up so you know, he's really, I think he's painting himself uh, and he's painting the, the country into a real corner here uh, because where where do you go from there? You know, what is what is the vision for the future for Russia? Well, it's it's just about recreating the past and, and that's not going to take him very far, surely. And if you're perhaps cynical like I am and subscribe to, say, Khodorkovsky's sort of point of view on this, um, you could say that, yes, there's conservatism, yes, there's resistance to ideas. But what it basically comes down to is that a lot of people got immensely rich in the 90s without having to earn it organically, without having to perhaps take the responsibility, put the time and the effort in uh, to actually achieve something. This wealth was achieved in some cases through theft, in some cases through a process akin to theft. And all these efforts to then uh, solidify society and resist ideas is basically based on the understanding of an elite who have fundamentally stolen their wealth. And they understand that if they let their guard down, there's plenty of other people there 
who are going to steal it off them. I mean, that sounds quite paranoid, but I think there's something of that going on, isn't there? Yeah, well, when you when you sit at the top of a system, as Putin does, which is institutionally corrupt, then that has all kinds of consequences for the, the pressure then to protect the status quo, the, protect, the pressure to um, make sure that, that no one is able to look too closely into the details of, of you know, where the money is going and, and so on, which is, I think, one of the reasons why Navalny's anti-corruption campaign has been so brilliant, because uh, it's one of those things that, that, that ordinary people can really um, sympathize with because they can see the difference between how, how these rich elite people are living and, and the differences between how, how they have to, to suffer uh, from, from lots of ordinary problems that don't get resolved. So um, yeah, absolutely. I think money, um, I think power, um, privilege, and, and the desire to maintain, to, to continue to sit on top of that system and not to see it undermined um, must be very powerful because you know, we all, we think we tend to think of Putin as, as having sort of all kinds of power, and actually, though he he is nevertheless dependent upon others to continue to support him. Um, you know, he doesn't have the total power of life and death over everyone. Um, and if he if he should be seen to be uh, not protecting the right people, if he should be seen to be uh, no longer uh, in charge of a system and able to keep it going, well, you know, who knows how long he, he would actually last. And this is, again, something I think which a lot of people fail to understand is he came to power in the 90s really as a broker between mafia gangs uh, in St. Petersburg um, and the sort of state institutions. And through his rule, they've kind of blended and merged together with... I think in the 90s when we were there, really, that was when the FSB, which had become relatively powerless for a few years only, had started to really re-emerge and take over that criminal side of business uh, to the point where state secret services and, and, and the mafia uh, blended into, in, into one. Um, and even now, you know, he's not the, as you say, the fully autocratic ruler. He's actually sitting... Uh, on top of an elite of of almost like robber barons who are constantly vying uh, to to gain control over different areas of the economy or the security forces, and you know behind the scenes you know, there, there's quite a few of them bumping each other off. But let's return to let's return to things that are more fact based. Um, out of people who've been designated foreign agents. Do we have an idea of, of how many of them have been forced to leave the country and, and how many have carried on within Russia? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, the honest answer is I don't know. I mean, certainly the last time I looked, the Ministry of Justice list of foreign agents was certainly hundreds long, um, but that, that was a mixture of organizations and individuals. So within an organization, obviously, you know, everybody who worked potentially for it would, would be also tarred with that brush. Um, I don't know how many are still left in Russia, to be honest. I think between, between the foreign agent law and the way that it's been extended and expanded over the years, and then the extra legislation that's come into to play since the start of the special military operation in, in Ukraine, um, I think the combination of those two things has really pushed um, a, a lot of Russians um, to leave. And I guess, I, I don't know how many are still left in Russia, to be honest, but I would guess it's probably not very many at all. Mm. Um, not very many at all. It's quite 
quite difficult. I mean, there are a few holdouts um, here and there, but I think a lot of people have just, just realized that it's almost impossible for them to function as professionals. Um, and this is, you know, what I've heard from, from Russians who've left is that, well, what will I do? You know, would I, would I get a job sweeping the streets? You know, what, to use my skills and my, my knowledge and my experience, um, you know, what exactly do I do? I either change jobs entirely or I succumb to the regime and I mouth the, the, the narrative of the Kremlin. Uh, and, and, you know, people who've left obviously didn't, couldn't, couldn't see themselves doing that. It just wasn't possible with their consciences. And as you say, there'll be hundreds, if not thousands of people working for these civil society organizations and NGOs who are not necessarily overtly political. So those organizations mostly, I think, have been disbanded. I mean, most disbanded, some have moved abroad, but most have simply uh, been sort of uh, mothballed yeah. until a future time. And I guess many of those people would have had to uh, go and just seek other jobs. So some of them will be will still be in country um but uh we're talking not just hundreds but it, it does affect thousands of people overall doesn't it yeah absolutely definitely does and if you think about it as well it, it you know the, the sort of ripple effects of you know families as well of, of the people who who've been either declared foreign agents or worked for organizations that that were declared foreign agents so it's it's got a a, a bigger impact i think even than the the numbers that that we're talking about so yeah now, the ramping up of this law is is not accidental, is it? Um, clearly, 2012, it came into force. That was the year of Bolotnaya and the protests in Moscow. And, and clearly, it's linked with that and the stolen election uh, that happened around that time. And the ramping up of the laws again in 2019, 2020, and especially 2021, um, that really was almost, I would say, a, a tremor um, ahead of the, the, the earthquake, uh, which, of course, is February this year and the start of the war. Um, did you, having observed these laws really tighten up, and, of course, what was happening in Belarus, I mean, did you feel that this was leading to something or did you not see a pattern in this uh, through 2021? Well, there certainly was a pattern of, of as you say, increasing um, severity and harshness and, the, and an increasing intolerance or a lack of tolerance to any kind of, of expression of opposition or resistance or defiance or even trying to hold the government to account, which is, you know, one of the most basic uh, of democratic principles is this idea that the government should be accountable to the people. Um, and I think it was it was increasingly that idea that actually no we're not going to be accountable to anyone <laughs> that that we're not going to be questioned and um, we're not going to be accountable and that's that's it because the power lies here and it doesn't lie there and and that's the end of it and I think it was just a progressive progressively um, a progressive development of of this idea that that no resistance is tolerable, um, that, that no longer is it possible to even allow, you know, people to have a very minimal expression of, of dissatisfaction, even attempt to point out um, blatant uh, examples of people breaking the law or, or agencies of the state not following their own laws and this sort of thing. So, yes, I think it was... I almost see it as, as a progression of Putin's, 
Putin becoming much more set in his ways and much more, um, I don't know, pessimistic, turning his back on the world, really, um, turning his back on, on any kind of criticism. And, you know, I don't think this is necessarily where we had to end up. If you think back to, you know, even though, yes, there were plenty of, of signs of, of, uh, of Putin being, you know, hand in glove with, with corrupt people uh, by the time he became president, um, you know, the end of 1999, 2000. Nevertheless, there were, there were indications uh, earlier on, there were more, much more positive indications. And I think things didn't necessarily have to end up here. Uh, but they were clearly becoming, you know, more and more extreme in terms of the response to uh, to any kind of opposition. So yeah, I mean, I, I I didn't foresee the the mass invasion of Ukraine in in February. I have to be honest and say I I was one of the ones who thought surely this is a performance designed to get concessions. It's surely not really you know about actual mass invasion. That would be insane. Um, so I didn't see it. I didn't see that particular uh, next step, but certainly this, you know, this reluctance to to acknowledge or uh, tolerate any kind of resistance or opposition, I think, is is mm. progressively coming for the last ten years for sure. And you're not alone, of course, because many of the Russian opposition, uh, very astute commentators like Viktor Shindorovich and others. I mean, none of them thought that the full scale war was going to happen, um, despite the British and US intelligence uh, claiming it would. I think uh, it did take a lot of people by surprise, including probably large parts of the Russian military themselves, um, until the last minute probably thought it was a negotiating tactic, albeit quite an aggressive one. Yeah, exactly. And it also didn't didn't match the way that or didn't fit with the pattern of the way that Russia has been using its military abroad, um, you know, since Putin first came to power, which has been much more limited, much more targeted, much more focused. Um, you know, the commanders have been able to, to pick their units and, you know, send send just the ones they wanted, um, whereas this is all about, you know, pulling everybody they possibly mm. can get out and, and putting them into the field. And it's a very different sort of way of of uh, thinking about military force. So it was just, it totally broke the patterns. And, and that's really what, what surprised me is, is that it was such a break with, with recent pa uh, the recent past. And of course, um, picking adversaries like Syria, like Chechnya, um, who were not going to offer organized resistance. Um, and yet, if you look objectively at Ukraine, uh, you know, it's a society that has been militarized by force, <laughs> by necessity, for eight years, yeah. prepared, as it were, for this. Yeah. And um, it, to me, it does speak of a losing touch with any kind of reality and perhaps uh, almost a, a sort of racially based um, uh, profiling, as it were, that has, has uh, completely misinformed the leadership. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a number of Ukrainian scholars and activists have pointed out that, that this is really the working through of Russian imperialism of, you know, hundreds of years of, of colonizing its neighbors and, and really seeking to, to dominate them and, and totally underestimating them as, as societies and communities, as people with agency and aspirations uh, and the ability to fight back. And so it's, uh, it, it's, it should be an enormous wake up call um, to Moscow, but I somehow suspect that that's not the lesson that they're taking away uh, from from Ukraine's resistance and its determination to fight back. Um, I think they're 
drawing very different conclusions, which take us back to this idea of foreign intervention and foreign meddling and, and you know, uh, foreigners, particularly from the West, trying to, uh, to interfere in, in Russia's affairs and trying to derail uh, what Russia is trying to achieve. So I think they, the, the people in the Kremlin very neatly jump over this, this problem, which, uh, which the war in Ukraine has is, is produced for them and, and point the finger further, uh, further away. And of course, it also suggests that Soviet propaganda and later Putin's own propaganda, at some point they would have known that these are lies, but at some point the conspiracy uh, almost became truth. Um, and I think that turns quite nicely to one of the prescribed organizations, which of course is Memorial. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a pattern, isn't there, to, to banned organizations. Um, either it's organizations that are developing civil society, uh, or criticizing the way things are run, or they're challenging corruption, or they're more political. But there's another class of organization, which is that that uh, seeks to preserve some historical memory uh, about uh, Stalin, Stalinist crimes, etc. So I know this is an area you, you specialize in. Could you tell us a bit about Memorial, um, mm -hmm. what it did, why it was founded, and of course, what, what happened to it? Of course. So it was set up um, really by um, Andrei Sokharov, um, so the famous, you know, scientist and, and, and human rights advocate and dissident um, who lived for, for so many years in exile in, in Gorky uh, during Soviet times. And it was established in 1987 during the Gorbachev period, during the time of Glasnost, during this time of, of real optimism about what might be possible in terms of being able to really look at what had happened in the past, uh, be honest about it, uh, talk about the crimes of the Stalin period, talk about you know, the people who had suffered and died and been imprisoned unjustly, um, and, and really you know, look at the past properly and, and come to terms with it and acknowledge it um, for the good of, of all of society, as well as to bring some peace to people who were you know, the, the family members of those who had been um, those who had been imprisoned or killed, um, and so, you know, during the 1990s and the early 1990s, they moved on from not only exploring the past and and supporting you know opening up of archives and and being honest about the past, but they began to also um, focus on human rights in the present and focus on um, trying to support. Uh, political prisoners and people who were uh, under pressure um, by by the government in, in Russia, and they provided you know lawyers uh, to, to support them. They raised money to support them, and they even took cases uh, took the government, the Russian government, to the European Court of Human Rights um, over over specific cases. So it was I think it was a, a combination of of threats, I really and challenges that Memorial posed to uh, to the government, which eventually you know the Putin regime found just completely unacceptable. Um, so both shining this really harsh light onto the past, which increasingly became um, not what Putin wanted them to do when Putin, you know, was looking to the past to, to try and, and glorify um, the, the great gains of, of uh, some of Stalin's um, years, including, of course, the Second World War. Um, but also, you know, increasingly focusing on the present. And, and that gets also very close to the bone because here we are, you know, have an organization which has this amazing uh, reputation for, uh, for altruism and this amazing reputation for truth and, you know, founded by Sakharov who has this, uh, you know, this aura of, uh, of the, 
the, the man who, who survived all this persecution. Um, you know, and, and they're taking on <clears throat> the government in, in the most direct way possible and saying, you know, we will not stand for these human rights abuses and you, you must uh, answer for them in court and law and, and defend them. So I think it was this double barreled um, challenge which just became increasingly uh, unacceptable uh, for the Kremlin. And, and so it's not, it's not surprising in many ways that they were one of the, among the first uh, to be declared a foreign agent. And, and eventually they were wound up um, in, uh, in sort of December, uh, 2021, I think. Um, so yeah, not that long ago, they were completely just banned. Uh, and that was, mm. that was the end of it. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 in many ways, it's very, very shocking that, you know, even Putin's regime would not hesitate to, to touch such a, such a revered, you know, respected institution um, as Memorial, and yet, you know, and yet they did. And, and the other aspect, of course, is that, uh, as with institutions that were swept away in 1917, they happened with barely a whimper. I mean, of course, there are some liberal voices, there's some protest, uh, as when, you know, Nemtsov was assassinated. But by and large, there's no mass protest, no mass movement to protect any of the civil society. And of course, we compare that very forcefully with Maidan, where hundreds of thousands of people sacrificed weeks, months of their time to protest in the freezing cold to protect their rights and protect their institutions. So there's this very stark contrast, isn't there, between Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, there's very different <clears throat> ways that the civil societies have developed in the in the two states and, and very different ways that, you know, societies have uh, evolved their relationship with with their the governments that they that they work with or, or get ruled by. Um, yeah, it, it is fascinating to, to see. But of course, on the Ukrainian side, the, the frustration that, that many Ukrainians have had is that, you know, they've had they've had to fight these battles again and again and again and again. You know, they'll have a, an orange revolution and think everything's going to be OK and then and then it isn't. And so they have to go and do the whole thing again and, and hope that, you know, things will, will get better in the future. So, um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there are two stark differences. And yet, nevertheless, in some ways, there, there are some similarities because they feel like they're they're forever you know rolling that boulder up the hill and then mm. rolling back down at them um so yeah i mean it, it's it's a very it's a big complicated question to kind of, of unpick as to why why those differences are so great but i mean one aspect which might be relevant is you know it always struck me at the end of of the collapse of the soviet union and when the the different uh kind of federal republics were going their own way and becoming independent states that the, the non-Russian states um, were always able to say, you know, the Communist Party, the Soviet system, this was imposed on us. We, we, you know, nothing to do with us apart from a few collaborators. It was mostly just, you know, it was the Russians who did this bad, bad thing to us. And the Russians, of course, could never say that. Um, they, they couldn't say, oh, well, this was done by, by some, somebody else that, that we had, had no control over. They, had, they never really got to grips with the idea of, well, you know, who was responsible for the system and why did we allow it to continue for so long and, and what are the implications of that? And they never really had any kind of lustration or any kind of, you know, real thorough uh, attempt to, um, to weed out people who had been very thoroughly uh, enmeshed in the old system. Uh, in fact, most of them just, you know, 
changed their hats a little bit, became new capitalists, you know, took advantage of their, their positions and hey presto, uh, became the new elite. So, so the, the ways that the, the two societies evolved and were able to evolve after 1991, I think are, is also very, very important. Uh, but this question about, you know, Russian civil society and what is it and, and what will it tolerate and what will it not tolerate, I think is incredibly important, uh, especially in the current context of, of the war in Ukraine. I, I have the voice of uh, numerous Russian taxi drivers ringing my head saying, we were victims too, you know, and, and not necessarily uh, embracing the idea that uh, Russians were the the sort of cultural and political imperialists in in the uh, in the Soviet structure, and uh, I, yeah, I, I I don't get the impression that 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 issue is being tackled at the moment. Quite the reverse, it's being buried. I mean, before before um, we come to an end, I really wanted to address um, this other class of organisation that are being um, really persecuted with the foreign agent laws. And these are ones like the Domestic Violence Crisis Center, the Committee Against Torture, um, and there are even several other uh, humanitarian uh, organizations there, and specifically ones that try to campaign uh, for women's rights and against domestic violence. Um, I'd love to hear your view on that and, and why this isn't accidental. Yeah, well, <clears throat> that's a fascinating one. Um, I would say that, that this is very much linked to another aspect that we've seen, um, especially since Putin has returned to power, which is the, the, the champion of this idea that Russia is uh, the protector of conservative traditional family values and the, the closeness uh, that the, um, the leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church have had with the, the current uh, government in Russia really reinforces that idea that, that this is this is a place where you know good old family values will be will be championed and and that means we don't want to hear about domestic violence um you know we don't want to know about it we don't want to think about those bad things happening because really you know in our in our imagined world the family the nuclear family the extended family this is the perfect you know miniature society this is where there's order and there's you know, care for the um, for those who are weaker, uh, by protected by those who are stronger. In other words, the, the men, the, the fathers will protect the, the women and the children. And we don't really want anything to disrupt that, uh, that narrative. And so, you know, hence the decriminalizing of uh, domestic violence in Russia. So no longer is it, a, you know, a criminal offense to, to beat your wife. Um, and, you know, even before the decriminalization, it was hard, very hard work, very difficult um, for uh, victims of domestic violence to be taken seriously by the authorities um, and to get some kind of, um, you know, some kind of support and, and practical help and so on. It was, it was a very difficult uh, process to go through. I mean, it's not an easy process for, for women who've been victims of domestic violence to go through anywhere, but I think you know in some places of the some parts of the world it's it's more difficult than others and I think Russia was at the end of the towards the end of the more difficult spectrum uh, of that and so um, you know but 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 over the past few years I think it's become even more difficult and these things have all been shut down and so you know so it doesn't it doesn't disrupt this rosy picture that that, that Putin and and others want to paint of you know of Russian society it reminds me of a socialist realist piece of painting, you know, where everyone, all the children have, you know, 
chubby pink cheeks and everyone's smiling and happy and the harvest is coming in and, and there's no problems. Um, so it's, you know, it's this unwillingness to, to acknowledge the darker side. Mm. And of course, if you think about it, one of the things that, that I think about quite a lot is what is going to happen in Russian society when uh, a lot of these soldiers come back from fighting in Ukraine, the ones who survive, you know, because we know there's a link between um, soldiers who've been in combat situations and domestic violence when they are demobilized, you know, this, that's been, been demonstrated time and again. And how much, you know, and, and the violence that has, has that they would have been involved in uh, and, and perpetrated in many cases in Ukraine, uh, human rights abuses, the torture, all the rest of it. And then they come back into their own societies. And I, I just, I'm sure that there will be a, a huge rise in incidents of domestic violence, but we're not going to hear about it because, you know, it's been decriminalized because the organizations that would have supported uh, the victims are not you know they've been disbanded or they just they're, they're under so much pressure they can't really do very much so i really really worry that this um this this veneer of of happy families that putin wants to kind of cast over russia is going to be hiding some really dark ugly things um and that you know women are going to be uh, going to find that their lives are, are much more difficult in, in the next coming years especially if they come back to limited economic opportunities crumbling infrastructure and really very few of the opportunities that were there in the 90s um that's the other challenge isn't it yeah exactly and you know what we've seen recently is is the the efforts that the state that the ministry of defense is going to to try and recruit more soldiers to go and fight in ukraine and the promises that they're being made you know sign up for three months sign up for six months you'll have all this money you'll have all these benefits you know you'll be a real man uh life will be great it'll give meaning to the lives of people who maybe feel that their lives have become a bit boring and you know it's it's not going to be like that at all it's going to be awful uh when they go to war and then when they come back again they're probably not going to get much of a hero's welcome and there certainly is unlikely to be uh, much of an economic benefit that they're going to be able to to reap uh once they return and this trauma will exist if realistic there's going to be vast trauma on the ukrainian side as well because there we also have hundreds of thousands of people who in some ways even worse were forced into being competent when they 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 didn't want to do that you know this has been forced on for reasons of survival um but from uh, some of the Ukrainians I've spoken to and a lot of the comments I've seen, there is a civil society effort going on right now to put in place uh, psychological and psychiatric support and a certain recognition that that will be required very soon. Yeah, I think I think this is the, the, the result of a bitter experience since 2014, because, you know, Ukrainian society has has now experienced what it is to have uh, people go away and, and fight and then return as veterans with maybe, you know, physical um, injuries that need to be treated for a period of time, but certainly psychological um, damage from having been been in the war, which need to be treated. And, and I know that, you know, before the current invasion began, the, uh, the Ukrainian government was only just beginning to get to grips with the idea of having something like a veterans administration. Um, you know, a lot of the effort at uh, improving military medicine over the past number of years since the, the, the war in the Donbass began 
has really gone into battlefield medicine in terms of immediately, you know, understandably treating the immediate wounds and, and getting people, you know, out uh, away from, from the front. But very little had been put into this longer term rehabilitation, whether uh, physical or psychological, but just beginning to get to grips with this idea that, okay, this is needed and we have to put measures in place um, when, when the current war began. So there is at least an awareness of, of the need and you know, Ukrainian civil society is doing what it's been doing extraordinarily well uh, over the past number of years, which is self-organizing, trying to figure out you know, how to, to provide community support. Um, but you know, I think that the scale of the problem, the scale of the need is gonna be such that the state is going to have to, to bear uh, quite a lot of that burden if it's mm -hmm. going to be you know, effectively um, kind of supporting uh, the, the people and, and basically I think almost the whole society is going to need some kind of, of psychological support because people have been uprooted from their homes, you know, whether they've been combatants or not, um, or they've been refugees or, you know, their, their houses have been bombed or some, something terrible uh, will have happened to them or to someone that they know or their communities. So it's, it's going to be an enormous need. And support from the West, of course, I think is going to be critical there because the scale of the problem is huge. Well, we're approaching the end, but my, my last question here um, is going to be perhaps a, an unrealistically optimistic one. But let's assume in the post-Putin era, there is an attempt to draw back from the edge of absolutism that we're seeing at the moment. Would a repeal of the foreign agent law be a good place to start that process of uh, getting back to an evolution of civil society in Russia? I think it would be essential, really, if we're going to talk about uh, a new uh, character of, of, a, of a future Russian government that, that is able to, to look at the world in a different way, is able to renegotiate its relationship with society because I think this is, this is where we, we are at the moment. We're in this situation where the Russian government um, has a very, um, paternalistic isn't quite the right word, but, but it has a, a very controlling attitude, I think, towards ordinary people in Russia. Um, and I think it, for a more healthy um, future, really, what we need is, is something which has got much more of a, of a co-constructed nature to it. We there needs to be a different character, basically, in the relationship of, of the state to the society. And you, you can't have a fundamentally different character if you don't trust the society to, you know, be able to ask questions and expose wrongdoing and, you know, inform, provide sources of information which are not completely controlled by the state. So I think for any real rehabilitation of, of Russian, the Russian government, I think it would be absolutely essential. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for this fascinating exploration of the foreign agent laws in Russia. It's a terrifying insight into a society that is steeped in lies and where independent voices at the moment have no right to exist. Let's hope that changes soon. Thank you. Thank you.